Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming out this morning. And we are going to open up our Bibles to the book of Mark, where we've been for a while now. We're continuing our study in Mark chapter 8, if you want to go there. If you have a digital device with you and want to open the YouVersion Bible app, you can find us there under events. And we're going to continue walking through the life of Jesus and learning what we can, lessons that he taught his disciples, lessons that were written down so that we can learn from them today. And today, one of the things we're going to talk about is titles, things that people call us. And I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this first by just sharing a little bit about my son, which I, I do from time to time because he's the source of most of the interesting things that happen in my life, as most kids are. Kids can ask some really crazy questions. They can ask questions that are profound. They can ask questions that are insightful. Sometimes that adults, we would never think to ask, right? They ask us some of the weirdest things, like the little girl that asked her mommy, who she found out was pregnant, she said, where's the baby right now? It's a good, good question. And the mama said, well, the baby's in my tummy. And the little girl goes, oh my goodness, you ate the baby? And kids ask some pretty interesting stuff. My son one time went up to a man uh, at a previous location, so it wasn't here, and he said, is there a baby in your tummy? Pretty awkward. This week, if you saw online, I posted something about my son asked me a question as we were driving together, and it was related to this. He said, Dad, how do babies come out of the mommy's tummies? And that's a good question. Now, by the way, we're not pregnant, so don't even get that idea into your head. I don't know why this was on his mind, but he said, how do babies come out of mommy's tummies? And I thought that I could be really clever and maybe distract him from this, and I just said, well, babies are in their mommy's tummies for nine months, and they come out, and we get to play with them. Don't you like playing with your little sister? Isn't that awesome? And he said, no, Dad. No. I know that, but how do they come out of mommy's tummies? And I knew I was stuck. I thought about it for a minute. I said, you know what? The doctor helps get them out. And that was enough for him. He, he was able to take that. But he continued to ask more questions. And one of the questions that he asked this week, he said, Dad, how come those people were calling you Adam? And he knows that's my name, but I think he was just trying to figure out, okay, when do we use different titles and Mr. So-and-so and Pastor So-and-so and all these different things. But he, he wanted to know, why were those people calling you Adam? And it got me thinking about the titles that we use to refer to different people. And I, I asked him, as, after we talked for a little bit, I said, now what do you call me? And he, he got a big smile on his face. He said, I call you Daddy. And I thought that was awesome until he followed it up with, well, now I just call you Dad. But he said, only me and Adeline can call you that. We're the only ones that call you daddy. And I thought, that's right, that's, that's right. The titles that we have in life, they carry some weight. They mean something. They're important. And, and we tend to have some different titles in life that we go through. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is different titles that we have, titles that we give to different people. And I want to put something up on the screen here. A title says something about the person who holds it. It says something about our identity. It might say something about our profession. It might say something about our gender or our relationship to another person. But a title says something about the person who has it. A title also says something about the person who uses it. A title says something about the person who uses it. It might describe the relationship that they have with that person, a father, 
a mother, a grandmother, you know that whoever is saying that word, daddy or dad now, I guess in my son's case, he has a special relationship with me that other people do not have. Only my children can really call me dad, right? Only my children can call my wife mommy. That's a special relationship that they have with them. And we have names for our kids too that we just call them son, daughter, princess, knucklehead sometimes, you know, when they're really screwing up, like what's going on? That's probably one of the better ones we can call our kids. We have titles, names that we use for different things, and that title says something about the person who uses it, the relationship that we have with them. And some of you have titles, different titles too. Titles that speak of your identity. Maybe you are a doctor of some kind, and so you have that title in front of your name. And do you remember when you finally finished your exams or, or finished uh, your, your, defended your thesis and did what you had to do to get that title of doctor? And how that made you feel. You can be called a doctor now. Maybe you go get one of those shirts that says, trust me, I'm a doctor. And you just kind of put it out there. I'm a doctor. Everybody should know I'm a doctor. We have these different titles that we carry through life. Maybe you're a, a father or a grandfather or a mother. Or if you're a parent, remember the first time that your kids started calling you dada or mama? That's a special moment when they use that title for you. It's a relationship that's there. It says something about the person who uses it. Now, what happens if someone doesn't use your title? If you're a doctor and a patient of yours decides that they're not going to call you a doctor anymore, I'm just not going to say it. I don't acknowledge that you're a doctor. Does that make you not a doctor anymore? No, you're still a doctor. But it does say something about the relationship of that person that they're not willing to trust or not willing to acknowledge that you have that doctor title. If you're a parent and your child refuses to call you mom or dad anymore, first of all, that's very hurtful, but does it make you not their parent? No, you're still their parent, you're still their mom, you're still their dad. Whether they choose to call you that or not doesn't change whether you have that title, but it does say something about the relationship of the person who uses it. If they use that title, doctor, mom, dad, grandma, it describes a relationship that they have. So whether or not a person uses a title doesn't change whether it's true. Whether or not a person uses a title doesn't change whether it's true. And so if, if you stop calling someone by that title, it doesn't mean they don't have it anymore. It just means that you're not giving them the acknowledgement or the trust or the respect of that relationship. So there are three things I want you to remember this morning. As we go into the book of Mark chapter 8, I want you to remember these three things. First of all, a title says something about the person who holds it. Secondly, a title says something about the person who uses it. And third, whether or not someone uses a title doesn't change whether it's true. Now, what does that have to do with our message today? Well, our text this morning contains a very important question. It's the most important question in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the most important question that you or I will ever answer. It's a question that is a title question. It's a question that Jesus asks in this chapter, Mark chapter 8, towards the end. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a title question. Who do you say I am? Is he a prophet? Is he a priest? Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Is he just a good person? Is he just a moral guy? Who is this Jesus? And Jesus is going to ask this question of his disciples. Who do you say that I 
am. And in Bible times, you have to understand that many people, when they thought of Jesus, they thought of him as a rabbi, as a good teacher, who was maybe going to be enough to overthrow the oppressive government. Let's get the Roman government out of here, and this Jesus is going to be not our spiritual savior, he's going to be our physical savior who's going to save us from this Roman government. And so people had this idea about Jesus. These were the titles that they ascribed to him. The great author and literary scholar C.S. Lewis wrote about this question, who is Jesus? And he picked up on some themes that were around before him, but he framed it in a way that I really appreciate. This is from the book Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, it's a good analogy, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That is how C.S. Lewis frames and answers this question. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. And for C.S. Lewis, he has concluded he is Lord. But what will the disciples say as Jesus asks them? And just as importantly, what will you and I say today about this question? Who is Jesus? Now the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this question in them at different points, but they all line up. The stories line up in parallel. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. But only Mark records a miracle that leads up to this question, and that's what we're going to look at today. You have to understand about miracles. The miracles are not just an opportunity for Jesus to heal someone. It's great that he heals them. It's great that he does something for them. But it's not just about healing with Jesus. When he does a miracle, there's always a reason. If it was just about healing people, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and instantly healed everyone that was sick. He didn't do that. The reason he does his miracles is to make a point. There's a purpose behind them. That's why sometimes we call miracles living parables. Because when Jesus does a miracle, there's a reason for it. And we saw this last week. When Jesus fed the 4,000 men, plus women and children, so probably well over 10,000 people, later on he calls back to this with the disciples and says, don't you remember when I performed this miracle? And he calls back to an earlier one. Don't you remember this other miracle? Don't you see? Don't you understand? Because these miracles were there to make a point. There's a reason for them. So Jesus' miracles have meaning. There's a reason that they happened the way that they did. They demonstrate not just his power to perform miracles, but they say something about who he is. They say something about his title, and the disciples ought to start picking up on this. And that's why the miracles are so important. That's why Jesus says, don't you see? Are you so blind? You have eyes, but you don't see. In essence, Jesus is saying, hello, 
Wake up. Can't you see what's happening with these miracles? They're communicating something here. Think, McFly. You know, wake up. This is something you ought to be paying attention to. This is saying something about who I am, not just what I can do. So with that, let's open our Bibles. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Now let's get our bearings here. Remember from last week, we are in the Galilee region and Jesus was in the area of the Decapolis. He he fed the 4,000 people. Then he and his disciples got in a boat. They traveled over to Magdala and over in Magdala, the Pharisees demanded a sign and Jesus said, no sign will be given to you. Why? Because the Pharisees wanted an on-demand miracle. They didn't demand a sign or a miracle when it was actually needed. They wanted it just to prove Jesus' authority. And they were not following Jesus to see that he was demonstrating his power all the time. But they weren't willing to follow him. They wanted to just show up, have him perform a quick miracle, and be on their way. And Jesus refused. And then he travels over to this area up here, which is the area of Bethsaida. And in Bethsaida, this is an area where Jesus had fed the 5,000 people some time ago. Now he's going back through there. And when he gets there, we see that some people have brought this blind man to him. There's a couple things that I think are worth pointing out here. The people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and to heal him. Now, here's what's interesting about this. These people had faith, at least at some level, that Jesus could actually do something to help this man. They believed that Jesus could really help him. And they genuinely cared about this man because they brought him to Jesus, not as a test, not as an opportunity to say, here you go, Jesus, let's see if you can do it again. But they begged him, begged him to heal this man. These people genuinely cared for this man and believed that Jesus could do something about it. Those are two very interesting things about this group of people. Because I think about those of us in this room today who absolutely claim to believe in God and believe that he is the answer to our problem, to our problems, to life, to eternity, to the problem of sin that we all have. We believe that. And we say that we care about other people. Do we care enough to do what this group of people did? To bring people to Jesus. See, Jesus has told us that we are his representatives in this world, that we are to go and make disciples. Paul tells us over and over again that this is something that we are supposed to be actively engaged in, that this is something we are supposed to be doing to represent God to people. Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God is making his appeal through us to be reconciled to God. Are we out there bringing people to Jesus and bringing Jesus to people? Now, I know that that's not going to just happen through a five-minute conversation most of the time. Usually that involves building of a relationship, developing a bit of a trust and a friendship there to where we can say, hey, let me tell you about this this man, Jesus, who made this huge difference in my life. It's interesting to me that these people, this group of people, brought this man to Jesus and begged him to touch the man and heal him. Let's read on. Verse 23. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Now, what's interesting here is that he takes the blind man by the hand. This is not exactly 
the type of person most people would be eager to touch in this day and age. There's something wrong with him. There's a reason why he's probably a little bit of an outcast, and this group of people has to bring him to Jesus, and yet Jesus is willing, notice the gentleness here, to reach out and touch the man. In fact, Jesus had a bit of a reputation for touching people. Really interesting. The people came to him and said, would you please, they begged of him, would you touch this man? There was something about the touch of Jesus. Jesus was a gentle person who was willing to reach out and touch people who were lepers, who were disabled, who were unclean in different ways. He embraced the untouchables. He loved and cared for people who no one else seemingly might have loved and cared for, who were outcasts. That's the kind of God that we serve. And aren't you glad that Jesus interacts that way with us? He takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. He leads him out of the village. That's very interesting to me because Jesus wanted this to take place away from Bethsaida. Why is that interesting? Well, earlier on, Jesus had talked in the book of Matthew about different cities that he had performed miracles in and that had not believed in him. I want to show you one of these. This is from Matthew chapter 11. So Matthew and Luke and John, mostly Matthew and Luke, match up with Mark as he tells the story of Jesus. From different perspectives, they each give us different stories, different snippets. But what's interesting is that Matthew 15 and 16 matches up with where we're at right now in Mark 8. But if you go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 11, this is what we read. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, the city where Jesus is now. What sorrow awaits you? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented long ago. And then we skip forward a couple of chapters in Matthew to chapter 13 and we read this. Jesus is in his hometown here. He's in Nazareth. He's just performed some miracles. And then the Bible says this, and they were deeply offended. The people that witnessed what Jesus was doing were deeply offended. They refused to believe in him. And Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. And I think this is exactly what's happening in Bethsaida. Why is Jesus leading the blind man away from the village? It's because he has already pronounced judgment on these people and said, if the miracles that were done in you were done in these other wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And yet you do not believe. And so Jesus leads the blind man with gentleness out of the village. And here's something else that might be easily overlooked. The blind man follows he doesn't say, hold on, I want to know exactly where we're going. He doesn't say, wait a minute, I want to see the master plan. I want to know where we're going, what we're doing, what you intend, how you intend to fix me. He just follows Jesus out of the village. There's an element of trust there as well. Trust that the Pharisees didn't have, that the disciples sort of have, they're following Jesus. But this blind man and his friends, they believe Jesus can actually do something for this man. And so he's willing to trust and to follow and let Jesus lead him away. Verse 23. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, 
He said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And this is actually a, a somewhat of a difficult passage to interpret in the original languages. But this is the best, the best translation I think we can get out of it. They look like trees walking around. In other words, it's a foggy kind of perspective. He sees, he sees what looks like blurry columns of people. But, he, but they're moving, so he knows that they can't be trees. But they just look like trees to him. And then he says this. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Now, there are a couple of challenges with what we just read. This is the only miracle like this in the Bible, where we see a healing take place in two parts. And what's up with the spit? <laughs> is anybody else thinking about that when you read this? What is it with the spit? Now, I've seen a lot of faith healers. I've seen a lot of people who claim to be able to have the power of God to heal people. And all they ever do is bop people on the foreheads and wave their hands at them. None of them ever bring somebody up on stage and go stand there for a minute. I don't see anybody using spit to heal. Now, I want to I demonstrate why, it's, why the spit is important this morning. So I'm going to ask for a volunteer. No? Nobody? Linda? No? No, we're not going to do that. That's disgusting. Why, why did Jesus spit on this guy's eyes? And why is this a miracle in two parts? Those are our interesting challenges for this morning to wrestle through. It sounds a little disgusting, um, but we're going we're gonna to dive into that here this morning. So back then, all medicine was different than we have today. Today we have isolated chemical compounds where we can, we can find things that help to heal and, and kill bacteria and do all these other things. Back in this day and age, 2,000 years ago, medicine looked completely different. It was based on plant liquids and herbs and, and spices and seeds and sometimes saliva. Saliva was actually a known kind of healing substance back then. Not only was it warm and thicker than water, but it was actually known to be useful for healing eye maladies. In the time of Jesus, we have multiple accounts of other people like the Emperor Vespasian or Pliny the Elder, different people from this era who purportedly used saliva as a salve for the eyes. And in some cases, they claimed they actually saw people recover after they used saliva. And this is interesting. I did some research. I always want to find out what's, what's going on with some of the things that I'm speaking about. And I found an article from just a few years ago this is a journal article about the beneficial aspects, medicinal, of saliva. Get this. This is from a few years ago. A report by scientists from the Netherlands identifies a compound in human saliva that greatly speeds wound healing. This research may offer hope to people suffering from chronic wounds related to diabetes and other disorders, as well as traumatic injuries and burns. In addition, because the compounds can be mass-produced, they have the potential to become as common as antibiotic creams and rubbing alcohol. That's just a few years ago. And I found multiple articles like this of how we are just now discovering how beneficial saliva can be and I even thought about, do I go into this morning all the properties and mechanics of how that works? Because I had to spend like three hours studying this. It was so fascinating to me. And I'm not going to bore you with that today. They do all this cool stuff, the, blood, the white blood cells and the saliva and everything. There's a medicinal value to saliva. Now, Jesus using saliva as he is healing this man. We'll get to the two-part thing in a minute. But him using saliva as he's healing this man 
is interesting because if he were to do this today, I'll bet he would have just pulled out some visine drops and go, boop, boop. Can you see anything now? And the man says, well, it's better. I can see a little bit now. I can see what look like trees moving around. They're kind of blurry, but I know that they're people. Means probably this man wasn't blind from birth. He kind of knew what to look for, but his vision wasn't completely restored yet. But that's what I think is going on here with the saliva, why Jesus does this. So he looks around, he sees what look like trees, and the disciples have seen these miracles before. They've seen Jesus heal people who are deaf. They've seen Jesus multiply the bread to thousands of people. They've seen him do miraculous things. But now he has a miracle for them that is uniquely metaphorical for what they're going through right now. So he sees these people, but they're blurry. And Jesus, just a little ways prior, in the boat, we talked about this last week, says to the disciples, don't you see You have eyes, don't you see? Don't you remember these miracles that I did? Don't you see yet? And Mark wants us to see this connection here. That's why this miracle is placed right here in between the story of the boat when the disciples don't see, right after the Pharisees who are completely blind don't see, and right before what we're going to see in a minute is Jesus asking this question, who do you say that I am? So up until now, the Pharisees have been like this blind man. They've been following Jesus. They see partially, but it's foggy for them. They don't fully grasp what is going on with Jesus. They know there's something to this, but they don't see clearly yet. And then Jesus, verse 25, then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. And this is, this is fascinating here, because the words, we're not going to get too far into the Greek here, but I just want to show you, his eyes were opened, his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. These are three different words, completely different words, for restoring sight. In fact, I think there, there are several, I think there's something like eight different words that, that we could have seen here for how to have sight restored, and they all mean different things. And without going too far into those nuances, let me just tell you that what this communicates here is a complete restoration of eyesight. In other words, this man did not go from being blind to being blurry to being nearsighted. This word at the end here, he could see everything clearly, it actually communicates the idea of long-distance vision. In other words, this guy had perfect 20-20, maybe better than that vision, restored by Jesus. This was an incredible miracle in two parts, but an incredible miracle. And I have to imagine that they were testing him out a little bit. You know, can you see what that is over there? Can you see what that, can you read that sign over there? And he reads it to them and none of them can make it out. They have to go closer to see what it says. And they come back and, yep, he was right. This is an amazing miracle. Eyesight completely and totally restored even from a distance. The miracle does three things here. Of course, it heals the man. That's important. But it also demonstrates Jesus' power. And number three, it represents physically what the disciples have been experiencing spiritually. The disciples are just like this blind man. And this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry, where Jesus is about to go away from the public crowds and spend time teaching and training his disciples. After the disciples see this miracle, there's a conversation that we're going to look at in just a minute, where you see everything shifts 
It's a turning point in Mark's gospel. It's a turning point in the Bible. And Jesus asks this all-important question, who do you say that I am? But before we go there, there is a powerful principle in this miracle. The fact that Jesus doesn't just heal the man at once. And I think it's valuable for us to remember that this is the way God works sometimes. And here it is. Be patient with the process. Be patient with the process. Why didn't Jesus heal the man instantly? He could have. Why hasn't he healed your sickness instantly? Why hasn't he fixed your marriage instantly? Why hasn't he solved your financial problems instantly? Why hasn't he repaired the relationship with your child instantly? Why hasn't he taken care of all of these situations in your life instantly? It's because he's trying to teach us to be patient with his process. He's doing things with us. He's working things in different ways. He doesn't always do things instantaneously, even though he could. Romans 5.4 says this, And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. James chapter 1 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. We have no indication that after Jesus partly healed this man, the man said, well, you couldn't do it all in one shot, so I'm done. I'm out of here. Thanks for trying. I'll see you later. We have no indication this man did not continue to believe that Jesus could heal him, even though he didn't do it all at once. And some scholars have pointed out that maybe the man didn't have enough faith the first time. And that Jesus did a partway miracle so that then he would heal him the rest of the way when he got more faith. And I, I don't think there's any evidence in Scripture to really support that idea. I think Jesus was using this as a teachable moment. A time when the disciples could see themselves in this man. And Jesus is trying to show them, you are like this blind man here. You've been able to see partly. You're not fully blind like the Pharisees. You can see partly. But look what I'm going to do here. Open his eyes, sight completely restored. And we need to remember that that is how God works with us sometimes. We need to be patient with the process. One more Philippians chapter 1. It says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. We need to be patient with the process. God is working things out in us. And there are times when we don't understand what's going on around us. And we don't understand why God doesn't just solve this right away. And yet he is continuing to be faithful and work in us. Jesus had a process to go through with this man. And now he's fully healed him. And look at verse 26. Jesus sent him on his way, sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now why would he say that? Because... He had finished doing miracles in Bethsaida. That was it for them. They had their opportunity. And he's saying, I took you out of the village to this place to be away from them to perform this miracle. Don't even go back into the village on your way home. I don't even want you telling people about this. They've had their chance. You just go straight home. And then in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, 
Some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. But then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the first time that people, that the disciples have recognized and acknowledged that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. Those two words, they mean anointed one. In fact, over in Matthew, we read that Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He gives us a little more of what Peter says there. This is not just a good teacher. This is not just a nice person. This is not just a rabbi. This is a special one of God, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who the prophets wrote about, the one who fulfills the prophecies. That's his title, Messiah, Christ. And remember, we said three things about titles. I want to put these back up so you can see them again. Three things about titles. Number one, a title says something about the person who holds it. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He demonstrates that through his miracles. He shows not only that he can heal people, that he has the power to heal people, but even in the way that he does it, he's communicating through living parables and saying, don't you see yet? You have eyes, don't you see? Are you blind? These demonstrate who I am. They say something about who Jesus is and the title that he has, the title he deserves. Number two, a title says something about the person who uses it. The fact that these disciples now recognize this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, it is a huge turning point in how they look at Jesus. Not just as a good person, not just as an interesting guy who can do some really cool stuff, but this is the anointed one. This is the son of the living God. And number three, whether or not someone uses a title doesn't change whether it's true. They didn't have to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah for him to be the Messiah. And the same is true for us today. Even if we don't recognize that Jesus is Christ, it doesn't change the fact that he's Christ. But it does say something about the relationship that we have with him. The titles we use are important. Now, we are going to take communion this morning. We couldn't do it last week because the installation service was in there. So this week, we get to do it together. And communion is this thing that believers have done for 2,000 years to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, his body was broken, his blood spilled out for us so that he could save us from our sins. And he did this not as a good person, not as a teacher, not as a moral man, but as the Messiah, as the Son of God, so that he could take on him all of our sin pay for it so that we could be reconciled to God and have the right relationship to God. And here is the question, the most important question that he asked his disciples that we need to answer today. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Was he a good person? No, that's not an option. C.S. Lewis points that out because Jesus claims over and over again to be something more than that. Was he a liar? Was he crazy? Or is he Lord? And for those of us who are believers, to call him Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, my Savior, that says something about our relationship with him. And if you don't have that relationship with him, I want to talk with you this morning and share how you can get to know Jesus Christ, not just as a good person, but as your Savior, as Christ.
And we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion together. But before we do, there are a few things that I need to share with you about this meal that we're about to take part of. It's a symbolic meal. We're not actually going to sit down and all eat a lot of food together like they would have back in the early times. Maybe we should do that sometime. Just have a full course meal here and eat together. But that presents its own problems. No, we're going to take the bread and the wine, or we're using juice. The bread, by the way, is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that if that's the, the case that you're in. And we are going to share this meal together. Communion here is open for anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And if that's you, please feel free to join with us, even if you're visiting today. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in Him, then you can just let the elements pass you by. As we serve these elements, it's a great time to reflect. As a believer, to reflect on and ask God to reveal in us areas of sin that maybe we need to confess to God. Areas where we have been impatient with his process in working in our lives. And if you're not a believer, this is a great time to reflect and ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? What is his title to you? Not that it changes who he is, but it changes your relationship with him. And as we serve the elements, you can hold on to them and we'll all take them together at the end. Would you bow your heads now as we pray before we take the Lord's Supper? Lord, we thank you so much for your word and how it continues to teach us and be just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. It's amazing to think, God, how you walked this earth, interacted with the disciples, how you taught them and how you inspired them to write these things down so that we could also learn from them and have a relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we take your your communion this morning, that you would stir up in our hearts a desire to love you more, a desire to follow you and serve you, and to live every day with the understanding that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and then that should mean something to us, that should change how we live our lives, how we talk with each other, how we interact with other people, because we have the most amazing person in the world who ever existed in the boat with us. We have Jesus not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Lord's Supper that we can participate in this morning and remember what you did for us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.